Hello, friends, and welcome. We are delighted to be here with Professor Tamar Ross on the great subject, How Does the Rambam Resolve a Clash Between Torah and Reason? Professor Ross will discuss the virtues and limitations of employing allegory as a method of reconciling religious tech truth claims with science, as evidenced in Maimonides' defense of creation ex nihilo in his Guide to the Perplexed, the Mornavuchim. A little bit about our scholar today. I know many of you know her. Professor Tamar Ross is Professor Emeritus of the Department of Jewish Philosophy at Bar Ilan University. She continues to teach at Midrash. She did her PhD at the Hebrew University and served as a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Jewish Studies at Harvard. She is the author of Expanding the Palace of Torah, Orthodoxy and Feminism, a book that was radically transformative of my own worldview. And I am pleased to share that the second edition is now out um, of important developments over the last 17 years uh, that are shared there. Um, and her areas of expertise include concepts of God, revelation, religious epistemology, philosophy of halacha, the Musar movement, and the thought of Rav Kook. So friends, um, again, once again, our topic, how does the Rambam resolve a clash between Torah and reason? Uh, thank you for being here, Professor Ross. We're thrilled to learn from you today. Okay, hi everybody. It's now evening in Yerushalayim, and I'm very sorry that we're meeting in Zoom because I much prefer a free give and take, but we'll try and overcome all the obstacles. When we talk about clashes between um, religion and science, uh, these we're not, of course, uh, Columbus discovering America. Uh, these kind of problems have been with us for generations even though the nature of the challenges change. And I would say they are much more pervasive and uh, encompassing today than they were in generations of the past. Uh, in principle, uh, logically, there are about four different positions one could take. Either one says that what I received by uh, the authority of revelation is true, and I dismiss the conclusions of reason or science, or I believe that the uh, conclusions of faith are false and we, I accept the uh, dictates of science and reason, or I believe that both have different spheres and they can live together even though they are contradictory because they apply to different areas, which is a very sophisticated and less known approach, or both are false, that could also be. Uh, regarding the Rambam, to this day, there are differences of opinion which of these four positions he really adopted. Some believe that he was a synthetic thinker and integrated the um, uh, conclusions of science and religion, either by saying that uh, science is right as far, or reason or philosophy is right as far as it goes, but it doesn't take into account certain religious assumptions which changed the whole picture. Or on the other hand, to say that uh, religious language is flexible, it uses metaphor and uses allegory, so that really it is saying what uh, science is saying, but in less precise terms that can be assimilated by even simple or non-intellectual people. Um, and um, I'll give an example uh, of, uh, two ways to take the synthetic approach. 
supposing you find uh, evidence of uh, fossils of dinosaurs and you say then the world is uh, much uh, more ancient than what we think, what we are generally turned, uh, told by tradition. Uh, so one can say, well, uh, the carbon tests are right as far as they go, but they don't take into account that perhaps perhaps God really uh, uh, in our world didn't uh, uh, erase evidence of previous worlds that existed. And uh, there is one Jewish thinker who even says that he kept them there as a trial of faith. Uh, and the other way of synthesizing, which is much more popular uh, when we talk about uh, the world having been created in six days, that's impossible according to the conclusions of science. So we explain that days in biblical times didn't mean what they do today. Um, I would like now to um, delve further in the Rambam and see how these uh, possibilities apply, don't apply, and what to make of them. And I want to begin with uh, his introduction uh, and introduction to his commentary to the Mishnah, chapter 10, which begins with Kol Yisrael Yeshlaim All of Israel has a place in the world to come, except for, and the Mishnah gives several um, people who don't uh, rate Olam Haba, but the Rambam it takes off from this Mishnah into a different question. And the question is, um, in the beginning of his introduction, he asks, or he speaks about five different sects and uh, how they regard the importance of observing mitzvot, what is the purpose of observing mitzvot, and why, what do we fear uh, if we uh, transgress? Uh, so the first uh, talk about the Garden of Eden, we hope to uh, reach paradise if we observe mitzvot, and if not, we will burn in hell. And the second talk about uh, uh, resurrection of the dead, and the third talk about uh, the times of Mashiach, and the fourth talk about um, uh, worldly goods that we hope to achieve if we do mitzvot, and the fifth, our eclectic, and they say, we expect all of this. Uh, and the Rambam uh, sort of presents these opinions non-committally, but somewhere you get a sense that he really is very disapproving. Uh, and in the end, he gives uh, an explicit objection and uh, two implicit objections. The explicit one is that these people, all these sects really don't ask about the traditional and very weighty concept of Olam Haba, the world to come. What is the relationship between these types of rewards or punishments and Olam Haba? Is Olam Haba a means to achieve them? Are they a means to achieve Olam Haba? And implicitly, he talks about uh, two other objections. One is that all these uh, types of reward are very crass and self-interest and physical, uh, but also uh, they describe uh, all these types of reward and punishment in a supernatural fa fashion. Gan Eden, the paradise is presented as a place in which rivers are flowing with uh, perfume 
and uh, the times of Mashiach are times when we will all be giants and uh, resurrection of the dead. We will all come back in our original physical bodies so that uh, you might expect uh, Grandma Shandle uh, to appear in her beautiful gown, not in the ugly uh, shrouds in which she was uh, uh, buried and so forth. Uh, and this uh, really uh, disapproval comes to the fore in the second chapter of this introduction, in which he jumps from classification between three, five different sects and their opinions regarding ulam haba, uh, the re ultimate reward of the mitzvot. And here he talks about three different classes of people and how they interpret the words of the sages. And one wonders what is the connection until one realizes that implicit argument against the Rambam's criticism would be that all the five different sects are really relying on verses in the Torah and in the oral law by, uh, given by Chazal. So what do we want from these people? Here they're only relying on what the sages told us. And um, here the Rambam comes out with his uh, more subtle view. Uh, and we'll read a little bit in chapter two. It is necessary for you to know that people are divided into three different classes regarding the words of the sages. The first class I'll try and sum up uh, for you. Uh, these are people who understand that the words of the sages should be taken literally. Uh, and uh, because they should be taken literally, even when the sages talk about things that are um, physically or rationally impossible, they believe that they are being also virtuous and saying, well, if the rabbi said so, then this actually is a necessary occurrence and not an uh, impossibility. In other words, it is saying we're being from by being um, uh, loyal to what Chazal say, whether uh, it's rational to our minds or not, we have to overcome this and believe in the sages. And the Rambam continues to say that these people are led to such an opinion because they are ignorant of science and far removed from knowledge. They do not possess that perfection which spurred them on of their own accord. Neither have they found any cause for rousing their attention. So here you also get the implicit assumption of the Rambam that really in order to be a uh, perfect man of faith, one also has to engage in reason and one's critical abilities in order to truly understand. Uh, and uh, he goes on and says that these people think that they are being loyal to the sages, but really uh, they're doing them an injustice because uh, if other nations would hear that this is what Judaism teaches, they would, uh, uh, such people would be amazed and would exclaim, how can there be anyone who would seriously think in this way and regard such statements as the correct view of things, much less approve of them? In other words, these things, people are, think that they're being loyal to Chazal, and actually they're doing them a disservice and doing a disservice to Jewish faith by attributing to uh, uh, religious belief things that are absolutely ridiculous. So uh, uh, he goes on quite emphatically and says, as God lives, it is this class of thinkers that robs our religion of its beauty 
darkens its brilliance and makes the law of God convey meanings contrary to what it was uh, intended to convey. And at the end, he says, it would be better that these people just shut up rather than uh, uh, try and uh, display their, their loyalty to Chazal because they do much more harm than good. Then he goes on to the second class and says that they are also numerous just as the first. They see and hear the words of the sages and understand them literally, thinking that the sages meant nothing but the literal interpretation indicates. So they are in common with the first group in the sense that they take the words of the sages literally, but they come to the opposite conclusion. They consequently apply themselves to showing the weakness of the political statements, their objectionable character, and to slander that which is free from reproach. They make fun of the words of the sages from time to time, imagining themselves more intellectually gifted and possessed of more penetrating minds. And uh, the Rambam goes on to understand that these people differ from the first precisely because they are more educated and he sees many of them as belonging to the, uh, relate to the knowledge of medicine and those who rant about the decrees of the stars. In other words, they're educated in astro astrology, even though the Rambam uh, didn't believe in astrology at all. Uh, so he says, these, these people think that they are sages and philosophers, but how far removed they are from humanity when placed side by side with true philosophers. And they are more stupid than the first class. In other words, they're even worse than the first class. Why are they worse from the first class? Uh, he attributes them to uh, fatal errors. If only these, uh, they are cursed because they put themselves in opposition to men of great worth whose learning is manifested to scholars. In other words, they don't recognize wise people when they see them and exhibit a bit of humility, immediately they, when they take the statements of Chazal literally, then they say, this is rubbish and these people must be rubbish as well. And if only these fools had trained themselves in knowledge so as to know how necessary it is to use the appropriate speech and theology and in like subjects, which are common both to the uneducated and the cultured, and to understand also the practical aspect of philosophy, it would then be clear to them whether the sages were really men of wisdom or not. In other words, there are two faults that he is attributing to the second group. First of all, that they don't recognize and uh, show a bit of humility to wise people and think that they won't be saying stupid things. And secondly, that they don't appreciate what he calls the practical aspect of philosophy. There are people that are philosophers, but there are people who are also philosophers and also educated. And those who are philosophers also have some pedagogic qualities to them. And here the Rambam is being sort of anachronistic and uh, calling all of Chazal as philosophers who also knew the practical aspect of philosophy, which means to know how to present complicated ideas in a way that can serve at least two levels of people. The, the simple people will get what they can out of the literal interpretation. And the sophisticated people will recognize that there is also something more valuable that's hiding underneath. And uh, the people who 
embody this kind of wisdom are the third class of thinkers. And as God lives, he swears so, fair, so very small in numbers that one could only call it a class in the sense that the sun is termed a species. Here you see the intellectual uh, uh, solitude or uh, uh, the, yeah, solitude that the Rambam feels because he identifies with this third group and finds that there are very few of them. They are the men who accept as established facts the greatness of the sages and the excellence of their thought as to be found in the generality of their remark, which point to matters of great truth. And here, I don't want to read the whole section, you have it for you to read, but here he presents one of his first hermeneutic principles, which is, whenever you have a statement made by a religious authority, which appears to contradict what is proven by science or common sense and reason, you are duty bound to go back to the literal interpretation of the religious statement and assume that there are at least two levels here and that the first level is written in metaphor or in allegory so that people can take what they can out of it. Whereas the wise intellectual who has critical thinking will search for the deeper, more sophisticated meaning of that political truth. Okay. And he attributes that kind of wisdom to, for example, Solomon in the book of Proverbs, which is right why he wrote the book of Proverbs as Proverbs and the Song of Songs and part of Ecclesiastes. In other words, he is sort of the archetype that shows us how we really have to present complicated philosophical ideas so that the simple people can take what's necessary for them and the intellectual and the philosopher will regard it as allegory and look for the deeper meaning. And then he goes on to say, if you the reader, this sounds like a lot of intellectual snobbery. If you the, the reader belong to one of the first named classes, don't pay any attention to any of my remarks on the subject because not a word of it will suit you. On the contrary, it will harm you and dislike it. For how can food of lightweight and temperate character suit a person accustomed to partaking of bad and gross fare? In other words, if you're used to eating junk food all your life and every day you have pizza for supper, you're not going to enjoy the uh, nuances of a gourmet meal. But if you are of those who constitute the third class, and when you come across any of the sages' remarks, which reason rejects, you pause and learn that it is a dark saying and an allegory. And then you look for the hidden meaning. Okay. Uh, so far, it is, this is what he has to say about the statements of the sages. But the shocking thing for some people in reading the Rambam is that he is prepared to apply this idea, not only to the words of the sages, but also to the words of the Torah. That even in the Torah, when we find a statement which is absolutely negated by reason, philosophy, critical thinking, science, then here again, we are duty bound to go back and look for the hidden meaning. And uh, an example 
of this kind of application to the words of the Torah is the classical example of the contradiction between Aristotle's belief that the world is eternal and the popular Jewish belief that the world was created according to Sefer Breshit, creation ex nihilo. What do you do with that? So in, uh, he has a series of uh, chapters in Guide 2 which talk about this. And I've first chosen chapter 16, where I will first expound my view on this question and then support it by argument. Not by such arguments as that of the Mutakalamin. These were um, Islamic theologians who believed that God could do anything he wanted whenever he wanted, that his will was not bound by any wisdom, by wisdom or by uh, laws of nature. Uh, and so for them, there was no problem of creation ex nihilo, as opposed to Aristotelianism. So uh, he, he has exposed their weak points. As to the proofs of Aristotle and his followers for the eternity of the universe, they are, according to my opinion, not conclusive. They are open to strong objections, as will be explained. I intend to show that the theory of creation is taught in scripture contains nothing that is impossible, and that all those philosophical arguments which seem to disprove our view contain weak points which make them inconclusive and render the attacks on our view untenable. So, so far, it seems as if the Rambam is saying, I accept the idea of creation ex nihilo, not because of what's written in the Torah, but because the views of Aristotle regarding this principle are not absolutely watertight. In other words, there is a view that the world was created out of nothing. There is a view that the world is eternal. But since here, the views are equally weighted, and we don't have any absolute knockdown proof that creation ex nihilo is wrong, therefore, here we are duty bound to rely on tradition. This is a second hermeneutic principle. The first principle was, if you read something of the sages or in the Torah that is absolutely contradicted by science and reason, then you are duty bound to go and reinterpret the Torah so that it doesn't conflict with science. Here he is saying a second principle, that if the two arguments are equally weighted or each one doesn't have conclusive proof, then you go along with tradition. Since I'm convinced of the correctness of my method and consider each either of the two theories that is eternity of the universe and creation is admissible, I accept the latter on the authority of prophecy, which can teach things beyond the reach of philosophical speculation. In other words, here he's saying that with all due respect to reason, there are some things that we cannot uh, uh, prove by human reason. And here we have to rely on prophecy, we have to rely on tradition, which sometimes teaches us things which we can't reach by reason. Okay, that seems so far kosher and innocent enough. However, when we get to Guide 2, Chapter 25, things become more complicated. And we begin to wonder whether this is a case 
which the Rambam talked about in the beginning of the guide when he says that sometimes people plant into their works contradictions and they do so specifically in order to blind the eyes of people who can't take the more sophisticated truth, but uh, those who re recognize the contradiction will look further. So let's have a look here. Chapter 25, he says, we do not reject the eternity of the universe because certain passages in, script, uh, in scripture confirm the creation, for such passages are not more numerous than those in which God is represented as a corporal being, nor it is, is it impossible or difficult to find for them a suitable interpretation. We might have explained them in the same manner as we did in respect to the incorporeality of God. So here he says, I'm not rejecting the eternity of the universe because of what's written in the Sukkim of the Torah. That doesn't bother me because here, if the eternity of the universe were, was really proven, I could go back and reinterpret the story of creation metaphorically, just as I have done regarding all those psukim in the Torah that talk about God as having a hand, a strong arm, as talking, as being angry, as being jealous, as going up, as going down. Same, same thing, could have used the same tactic. For two reasons, however, we haven't done so and haven't accepted the eternity of the universe. First, the incorporeality of God has been demonstrated by proof. Those passages in the Bible, which in their literal sense contain statements that can be refuted by proof must and can be interpreted otherwise. But the eternity of the universe has not been proven. So here he's really going and giving the same uh, rationale that he's given in chapter two. 16, quite innocent. However, secondly, and here comes something that is much more problematic and uh, gives us a suspicion that maybe he's uh, putting up a smoke screen here to baffle those who can't really take what he really has to say. He says, secondly, our belief in the incorporeality of God is not contrary to any of the fundamental principles of our religion. It is not contrary to the words of any prophet. Only ignorant people believe that it is contrary to the teaching of scripture. But we have shown that this is not the case. On the contrary, scripture teaches the incorporeality of God. If we were to accept the eternity of the universe as taught by Aristotle, that everything in the universe is the result of fixed laws, that nature doesn't change, and that there is nothing supernatural. We would necessarily be in opposition to the foundations of our religion. We should disbelieve all miracles and signs, and certainly reject all hopes and fears derived from scripture, unless the miracles are also explained figuratively. So here he's given us the third hemenetic principle. The first one was, that if something that's written in the Torah is absolutely watertight, contradicted by reason and science, philosophy, then we are duty bound to reinterpret the Torah so that it fits with science. The second interpretive principle was, if the arguments are equally weighted, then we are duty bound to go along with tradition 
the tradition and prophecy and revelation can teach us things that, reason, that go beyond reason. Now he's giving us a third principle, saying that if the literal interpretation contradicts any very important principle in the religion, then here also, wait, uh, that it's, it's, excuse me, if the metaphorical interpretation contradicts something that's uh, absolutely watertight, uh, proven by tradition, then we cannot accept it. But here he's saying that that is not the case with, as he's saying that's the case with the incorporeality of God. The incorporeality of God doesn't uh, contradict any important principle of religion. But if we are to believe in the eternity of the universe as taught by Aristotle, that would, would um, uproot a very important principle in tradition, and that is the principle of miracles. Because if we say that the world is eternal, then it has always gone by fixed natural laws that cannot be interceded, interrupted in any way. And so he's saying incorporeality I accept, but eternity of the universe I don't accept because that's a no-no. That would uproot the idea of miracles. The allegorical allegories among the Mohammedans have done this and have thereby arrived at absurd conclusions. So he's uh, rejecting those Islamic thinkers who've gone for an allegorical interpretation because they've been influenced by Aristotle and they do believe in the eternity of the universe. They've reached absurd conclusions regarding miracles. If, however, we accepted the eternity of the universe in accordance with the second of the theories, uh, okay, here, he introduces another theory of Plato, which is sort of in between Aristotle and um, uh, the creationists, uh, creation ex nihilo, which is another smokescreen, uh, then uh, this theory would not apply. It's possible we, we could still accept miracles. The scriptural text might have been explained accordingly, and many expressions may have been found in the Bible and other uh, writings that would confirm and support this theory. So he's saying it is possible to accept that in-between idea of Plato, and we're not quite sure in the end where he comes out. But he says here, there is no necessity for this expedient, so long as the theory has not been proved. As there is no proof sufficient to convince us, this theory need not be taken into consideration, nor the other one. We take the text of the Bible literally and say that it teaches us the truth, which we cannot prove, and the miracles are evidence for the correctness of this view. Now here, anybody who has read the Guide of uh, the Perplex of the Rambam, something goes ding dong, ding dong, ding dong, ding dong. There's something very fishy going on here. Here the Rambam is saying, oi va voi, if we accept the idea of the eternity of the universe, we're going to allegorize, we're going to have to allegorize all the idea of miracles. But the truth is that in the guide, that's exactly what the Rambam does. And that complicates matters a lot. I just want to lead you to a few sections in the guide where he talks about various miracles, and there are more. And that's exactly what he does. The same thing that he thinks that we shouldn't do. 
or it seems to be. We have already shown that appearances of the speech of an angel mentioned in scripture took place in a vision or a dream. It makes no difference whether this, whatever the Torah talks about an angel, this isn't real, it's a dream. And um, uh, sometimes there are human beings that are shown to be angels, it makes no difference. Or if the fact that an angel has been heard is only mentioned at the end, you may rest satisfied that the whole account from beginning to end is just a prophetic vision. The same I hold is true in reference to Jacob, when Jacob says that a man wrestled with Yaakov of This is a prophetic vision, it didn't really take place, since it is expressly stated in the end that it was an angel. The circumstances are here exactly the same. And by the way, the Ramban takes uh, the Rambam to task on this, because he says, how can you say it was just a dream? Afterwards, the Rambam, uh, Yaakov, it said that he was Solea, that he was limping. So if the Rambam were modern, he might say that was uh, psychosomatic. I don't know how uh, justified. And then he goes on to talk about Bil'am and the speaking of that. Animals don't talk according to the Rambam, according to the laws of nature, it's obviously a prophetic vision. Do not imagine that an angel is seen or heard, uh, otherwise in a, in a prophetic vision or in a dream. Again, he talks about Shemesh Begivon Dome, that the sun stood still when Yoshua and Bnei Israel were uh, engaged in battle. And that's how they managed to do what they managed to do in one day. When I say above, that the sun stood still certain hours, I explain the words kayom tamim, a whole day, meaning the longest possible day, because tamim means perfect, and indicates that that day appeared to the people at Kivon as the longest day in seven. So what is he doing? He's making out that that whole miracle wasn't an abrogation of the laws of nature, it was an optical illusion. The sun appeared to be standing still because it was moving very slowly the last day, at the longest day of the year. Okay, so that gives us a lot of room for suspicion. But the Rambam nevertheless ends this chapter by saying, I'm going back to chapter 25, owing to the absence of all truth, we reject the theory of the eternity of the universe. And for this very reason that the noblest minds spent and will spend their days in research. For if the creation had been demonstrated by proof, and he says it hasn't, even if only according to the Platonic hypothesis, all arguments of the philosophers against us would be of no avail. If, on the other hand, Aristotle had a proof for his theory, the whole teaching of scripture would be rejected, and we should be forced to other opinions. I have thus shown that all depends on this. Note it. When Rambam says note it, he really wants us to go into deeper reflection. So here we're left with the quandary. We're not really sure what the Rambam's true opinion is, if we take into account what he has to say about miracles. On the other hand, even if he really comes down against Aristotle, nevertheless, 
he still comes out with the controversial statement that if Aristotle had a proof for his theory, he would be prepared to allegorize the whole teaching of scripture as it is understand, understood by simple literal meaning. And now, I don't know how you feel about that position. Some people find it intellectually liberating and other people feel very queasy about it because they feel that they are standing on shaky grounds and they don't know what the Torah is really telling us because it could change the minute we have a new philosophical or scientific understanding. And this feeling of queasiness and objection was very sharply expressed in the anti-Maimonidean controversy, uh, which took place uh, shortly after the Rabbam's time. And it's particularly voiced in an interesting way in the letter that was written by one Rabbi Huda ibn al-Fakhar to the Radak, David Kimkin. And the letter, I'm sorry that uh, you can't see the original Hebrew, but it would take a lot of time to translate uh, with all the flourishes. The truth is that it's a work of art because this David Kimri builds his argument, not by his words, but he takes psukim here and there and everywhere in the Tanakh. And he uses psukim very artfully to build his arguments without saying a word of his own. So it starts out, it's, it's really very, it's a work of art, it's a masterpiece, uh, but people wrote in that way in the Middle Ages, in middle old times. So he starts, do you not know, have you not heard? I've given some of the sources of the Psukim that he is quoting, that some of the words of the guide of the perplexed are themselves entangled in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and their beloved Maimonides has withdrawn himself and is gone. Sometimes, by the way, he uses Sukim to talk about Moshe, which is the Rambam, Sukim that talk about Yehuda, which is himself, and Sukim which talk about David, which is David Kimke. So it's very artistic, uh, uh, complicated art form. Okay. Uh, and the crooked serpent, uh, okay, and it's gone. In the mouth of Bilam's ass and the crooked serpent of Leviathan were only seen in, were seen only in a prophetic vision and by way of allegory. It is certain that all these statements are not to be interpreted by letting allegory break in like a burglar for God created and they were created, commanded and they were created. Okay, now he starts out with his attack. The guide, and he has three main points here. Um, the first point is that he doesn't acknowledge the parallel between um, creation ex nihilo and the incorporeality of God that the Rambam used in chapter uh, 25. He's saying that these two positions, these two sugyot, these two problems are not alike. The guide says, in regard to the eternal pre-existence of the word, that if Aristotle had a clear demonstration of it according to all the laws and principles of logic, 
one could take the spiritual scriptural, scriptural account of creation in a non-literal way and specify its meaning in accordance with the hypothesis of eternal pre-existence, just as he did with regard to the words of image and likeness, since their literal meaning would imply God's corporeality. Likewise, with every scriptural passage, if its opposite can be demonstrated, then we do not take it literally. Thus, he has made the path so crooked that one cannot pass. He turns this way and that. Again, it's using the pasu. But surely, he says, the question of the eternal pre-existence is not at all like that of corporeality. Why not? For regarding corporeality, there are several scriptural passages that contradict each other. One passage says, he saw the God of Israel. Another passage says, Lo ha'adam no man shall see me and live. Or uh, our, our rabbis of blessed memory said, the Torah speaks in human language. Unculus, the proselyte at the dictation of five elders, translated the first passage, and they saw he translated not literally. When they saw God, he translated, they saw the glory of God. In other words, uh, uh, Al-Pahar is saying that regarding the principle of God's incorporeality, we can get that learning from the Torah itself because the Torah doesn't speak in one voice. It has some psukim that talk about God's corporeality, but it has other psukim that definitely talk about God's incorporeality. And Unkus understood this. And so he understood which uh, psukim one must interpret metaphorically as the glory of God and not as God himself. Or the passage that reads, I shall dwell in their midst. Uh, build me a mishkan and I will live in this uh, tabernacle. And on the other hand, uh, Shlomo HaMelech, when he consecrates the Bet HaMikdash, he says, Hashamayim v'shmei Hashamayim lo yechal kulucha. Even the heavens and the heavens of, uh, of heavens cannot contain thee. So here are two contradictions. So here again, he trans was translated, I shall Ease my presence to, yeah, I shall ease my presence to dwell, my presence to dwell among them, not me, my presence. And likewise with similar passage. Okay. Wherever scripture says, I, God, shall dwell, it refers to the glory of the Holy One, the Shekhinah, and it said, so that glory or Kvod Hashem may dwell in our presence and not God Himself. That's regarding. God's corporeality, but regarding the creation of the world, all the scriptural passages agree with one another unanimously. And here he uses the psukim uh, of the kuvim, their faces are turned towards each other. One calleth to, to the other, like we say in Kedusha. Okay. Um, so he goes on to say, for every perfect logical demonstration, required exceedingly great scrutiny because sometimes there can be mixed into it some misleading words taken from that lying science known in Greek as sophistic. 
and when one is joined to the other, they work deceitfully, snaring even the wise in their craftiness. In other words, Yudal Fahar is saying, when you study Greek philosophy, you can use the methods of logic and sophistry of Greek philosophy. But when you study Torah, you have to use the rules of the Torah in order to interpret the Torah. And one of these rules is that when the Torah talk contradicts, it gives contradictory psukim, then there is one that is, must be interpreted metaphorically. But when the Torah, all the psukim speak in one voice, there is no room for allegory. So, uh, for example, okay. Um, Second, um, so that's really his second argument that really when we introduce the laws of Greek logic and understanding the Torah, this is somehow like introducing an idol into the uh, Beta Mikdash. It's, it's blasphemy. When you study Torah, you have to use the laws of the Torah. Um, okay, and his third argument. In an incidental way, we have learned that he relies on their matters, uh, uh, and matters of Torah has not fulfilled his obligation. It is all the more regarding, so regarding the demonstration of eternal pre-existence of the world, for it invalidates the Shabbat with its blemish by changing the meaning. For the partisan of Greek wisdom hopes to make people hate festivals and religion by destroying the sacred and hiding it among the profane, in the most hidden depths of the sand. He's saying, Shabbat, why do we observe Shabbat? Because So what are we gonna say? All of Shabbat is based on a metaphor? The reason for observing Shabbat is creation external. And then he goes on to say, um, First of all, you'd be uh, keeping Shabbat in vain. And it is said of the man who gathered sticks on the Sabbath, let all the congregation stone him with, sto uh, stone him with stones. If the allegories have their way, the Torah will evaporate and the judgment will not see the light of day. He's saying, what, besides the fact that Shabbat becomes meaningless if you give it a metaphorical interpretation, are you go going to go and kill? The person who's de desecrated the Shabbat on the basis of an allegory? Come on now. Okay. So he's got three strong arguments, so it seems, against the Rambam. I wonder what you think of all that. Uh, but because this is a Zoom, I can't start the conversation here. But I want to uh, go on to Spinoza was the father of biblical criticism, as we know. And he relates in name specifically to this argument between Maimonides and Al-Fahar. And what does he have to say about them? I've just given the sources, so if those of you want to look it up in his uh, theological and political treatise, may do so. Um, but to sum up his arguments, he says, both the Rambam and Al-Fahad are really using the Torah as a truth 
as a tool for their ideas. And they're in, interpreting the Torah according to what they think is true and not objectively letting the text speak for itself. Rambam explicitly admits that his grounds for interpreting the Torah allegorically is our reason. But even Al-Fakhar, who claims he is using the testimony of the Torah, is really using his reason to decide three separate things. First of all, it's his reason that decides where there are contradictions, because really the ability to see contradictions is context-based. And a certain generation will see one thing as a contradiction, and another generation might see another thing as a contradiction and not see a contradiction in the first. The second is more tricky. Al-Fakhar also decides for us which alternative of the contradiction we should accept as the real view of Torah and which we should reject. When I teach this to my students, sometimes I start out with a parlor game and I say, I am a Nuvia and I'm going to show you how I can predict the future. And I write a, a number on a little uh, note. And then on the board, I write one to five, five to 10, I know what number you're going to decide. First of all, do you take one to five or five to 10? And then after they give me that, between, and we decide five to 10, between five to seven, eight to 10. In the end, it turns out I always get it right. And only eventually do they realize how have I tricked them. That doesn't matter what answer they give me, I always cross out the one that's not convenient to me. And this is what Spinoza says that the Rambam is actually doing, um, uh, what Al-Fakhar is actually doing. He decides for us what the Torah really uh, uh, intends. Uh, and thirdly, he assumes that the, the idea, uh, he assumes that there can be no contradictions in the Torah and only one side is to be understood literally because of his preconceived notion of God as the author of the Torah. And uh, he goes on to say that in order to understand the Torah properly and its real intention, we have to approach it as we approach all other cultural artifacts. First of all, we have to use linguistic criteria to understand the character of the language, language in which the Torah was originally written. What was the meaning of the Hebrew words at the time? We have to use also the criterion of internal coherence. Collect together all the verses on any given topic. See those which contradict the general position and realize that we're not trying to arrive at our idea of truth, but the true interpretation of the verses as they were originally intended and avoid trying to distort them to fit our own understanding. For example, if we want to know if Moshe Rabbeinu really believed that Hashem was fire or that Hashem, God is a jealous God or that uh, uh, God um, uh, walked up the mountain or down the mountain, we don't decide according to what our reason assumes it was appropriate for Moshe Rabbeinu to believe, but by comparing that verse with other opinions of Moshe Rabbeinu on the subject and getting his general view. We have to also look at the historical background to explain the fact or exploit the findings of archaeology and history regarding the lives of the prophet, 
who they were, in what period they lived, for whom they wrote, in whose hands did the text fall, uh, did it undergo any changes in the interim. We have to use philological to tools, were there variations in the various versions, how they were finally edited, etc., etc. And he sums up that to the extent uh, the extent to which we understand the Torah will be will really depend on the extent uh, that we gather complete information on these questions. In other words, it's really illegitimate for us today to accept the possibility of allegorical interpretation in most cases, unless we find that the ancient Hebrews used allegory as a common form of expression because of the knowledge gained from recent advances in textual, linguistic, and historical criticism, which now allow us, by means of exact comparative techniques, to understand much more clearly all sorts of expressions in the Tanakh that were previously difficult. Today, it's not only philosophical and scientific or historical problems, but it's also literary theory, linguistics, hermeneutics, and so forth. So maybe I will, uh, even though this is not the end of the talk, maybe I'll open up some discussion here and see what people have to say regarding Spinoza. What do you think of has he given us? Hey, great, amazing. So much to think about here. I know this is heavy, friends, but wanna wanna invite folks to weigh in with some, some questions. Feel free to unmute yourself. Okay, by the way, we're going back yet because I'm not finished at all, but I just- Yeah, uh, great, wanna... great. Just to pause here to see if anyone yeah. wants to ask something at this point. What, what do you people feel about Spinoza? Has he convinced you? What do you feel about the, the previous? Anybody want to pipe up? If not, we'll just go back to me, but I want you to talk. We, we Spinoza, I mean, we have the Rambam's question, which is uh, we, have to we, have to, we have to reconstruct Judaism if we accept Spinoza. Um, and and so that's the question. So how do you do that? I, I know that I, 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 do you do it or do you re reject Judaism uh, uh, because there's no reconstruction that's possible? I mean, no. That's a question. Is no faithful reconstruction. I'm not going to leave you unreconstructed. <laughs> Would you say that's true in Reform Judaism and the exploration that's going on there? When you say you reconstruct Judaism, are you referring to, to the Orthodox view? Uh, you, uh, you'll ask that of the Rambam when he reconstructed. Was he the Orthodox view? The labels are not terribly important, but it's a view, but, uh, I, I believe that we can uh, arrive at a traditional reconstruction. Yes. Uh, that's what we want to hear. <laughs> So you're all left dumbstruck with uh, Spinoza. Okay, all I want to suggest, all I want to suggest is that while Spinoza has given us, uh, maybe we'll go back to the other view. Uh, by the way, can I ask you, where is the Al-Fakhar letter? Where, where can we find it? Uh, you can get it on the internet. Uh, there's an article um, that was written well, first of all, the Hebrew original is in Sefer Kana'ut. That was a collection of the letters that were sent to the Radak uh, in connection with the debate on Maimonides. Um, uh, it's, out of, it's, out of the, it's in the collection of Minchat Kana'ot or in a, 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 
Uh -huh. yes. uh, yeah. But it's also the English translation, which I found uh, in an article through the internet, which if you're, if you're interested, I can send the link to Shmuley. I don't have it handy now. I think that uh, Spinoza has really given us excellent criteria to understand the original and literal meaning of the Torah. But two objections I have with him is A, his attitude to the function of interpretive text uh, tradition in developing criteria for understanding the Torah or any sanctified text is one of total suspicion and rejection. In other words, he thinks that uh, anybody who comes with a tradition of interpretation or uh, an idea of the way a text should be interpreted is uh, using the wrong equipment. And secondly, not realizing that while he has given us excellent tools for understanding the text on a chat level, his rejection of any other level is also a function of his tradition in the sense of a culture or world of ideas. Must the meaning of text be limited to its original intent? Um, I'll give you an example from poetry. Supposing that um, uh, somebody who had never heard of poetry read a uh, poem and said, my love is a red, red rose. So say he's a creature that comes from Mars. So he scratches antennae and he'll say, oh, that's funny. Uh, my, my love is, uh, her name is Betsy and she's five foot three. In other words, when people write poetry, they assume that they are writing to an audience that has a tradition of appreciation and criteria for understanding poetry that is different from the way they understand prose. And if nobody has that tradition, then they will lose a lot or everything of what the poem is about because they take it only in its surface value. Now, the Torah also is a text that certainly has a literal meaning. And um, one can quibble about whether it was originally intended to be taken uh, uh, on a level of pshat, remez, drash, sod, or whether this was an addition, uh, an additional pers perspective of Chazal and the Torah Shabalpeh. But in any case, we belong to a community that has a tradition of reading sanctified texts in a manner that assumes that has that it has various various levels, and it's a mitzvah dafka to search and even sometimes uh, discover or invent new interpretations, and believe that this is also part of Torah. So Torah is and the truth is that although they didn't come out and say so expressly, the real guide for both Al-Fahar and the Rambam isn't reason or the testimony of the Torah itself, but the interpretive tradition of Judaism. This tradition that the meaning of the Torah doesn't end with its literal level was for them the major tool in setting up the very possibility for allegory or metaphor as a means of understanding Torah. Even in Halakha, the Rambam will sometimes rely on the Gaonic tradition as crystallized in the oral law 
and passed on from generation to generation. And he will say, and he'll say, he'll accept their view, only that according to the Rambam, sometimes one needs to complement this tradition by proven conclusions of science and philosophy. So the only argument between the Rambam and Al-Fahar is not whether tradition allows for allegory as a factor in understanding Torah, but to what extent one may also rely on reason when there seems to appear a contradiction between reason and literal interpretation of the Rambam, Rambam more so of the uh, literal interpretation of, of the Torah. Rambam believes uh, in relegating more space for reason and Al-Fahar less as he's more skeptical regarding the ability of reason. But both disagree with Spinoza that the truth of the Torah lies on the surface literal level. And they do so because their way of approaching the Torah is the product of an interpretive tradition totally different than the one Spinoza relates to. And when I speak to an, of an interpretive tradition, I don't mean tradition in the sense of Yura Levi, that there was a certain specific testimony passed on from generation to generation, but the tradition that allegories, uh, but, but rather a whole culture of ideas and concepts regarding the cryptic meaning of religious language, what constitutes the word of God and so forth. The divul, the speech of God unfolds the dabal, the thing, rather than service, serving as a reference for something outside it. In, According to the living Jewish tradition, the full meaning of the Torah is not represented by its literal meaning. Although science and biblical criticism are an indispensable tool for understanding the excavational meaning of the Torah, according to tradition, this level hardly bears any relationship to its full message. Such a culture has a special understanding of the significance of language and its possibility and what do we mean when we talk about Dvar Hashem, the word of God? This is already seen in Chazal with the idea of halachot learned from words with entirely different literal meanings, or even from the shape of the letters or the jots and tittles above them. It's seen in the Midrashic concept of the letters of the alphabet having a life of their own, which goes beyond their external form. Aleph cries out to Hashem, why didn't you start the Torah? with me and started with Bet, or the mystic idea of the Torah having existed before creation and God having looked into the Torah to create the world and that the Torah includes all the names of God and in the tradition of the words having certain creative and magical effects, Vayoma Hashem and the world began, that words in Tefillah have certain effects. All this leads to a way of looking at a divine text with the possibility that Hashem can talk to man on various levels and that each of them carries its own truth, which can be revealed by history and the advance of human knowledge. So logically, the idea of allegory and shot needn't contradict each other, but Spinoza and his continuers didn't take this into account because one needs to relate to the teaching of tradition to put on, as it were, Jewish traditional glasses in order to be able to look at the Torah in the way that the Rambam and Al-Fahar do, which does not count the validity of Spinoza's uh, manner of approaching to the, the Torah on, a, on a, a literal level. It's naive to believe that any cultural 
artifact can, can be approached without a prior tradition altogether. Even Spinoza, to a certain extent, uses a tradition to understand the Torah, the traditional meaning of the Hebrew words, and his denial of Jewish tradition, which is based on another tradition that the God doesn't speak to man because he exists in his heart. Okay, so much for uh, Spinoza, Al-Fahan, the Rambam. Uh, I would like now to end off with a more modern um, exposition of the role of uh, allegory or metaphor in understanding the Torah, which was expressed by Rav Kook vis-a-vis the theory of evolution. Um, and I'd like you to think afterwards about how he is the same or different from the Rambam and Yehuda al-Fakhar. Uh, we're looking at a letter that he wrote in response to Rav Moshe Zeidel, who was a disciple of his who taught Tanakh, also in the States. And uh, from Rav Cook's response, you can understand that um, Rav Zeidel asked Rav Cook, how can I teach the beginning prakim of Sefer Breshit and the banishment of Adam and Chavam in Gan Eden when we have the theory of evolution. So Rav Kook writes as follows. I find it necessary to explain to your noble self how we are to respond to teaching imparted to us through recent scientific research, which for the most part tend to contradict the simple meaning of the text of the Torah. It is my opinion that one who is of sound understanding must know that though it does not follow that these new teachings are necessarily true, we are not at all under the obligation to deny them categorically and to oppose them. It is not at all the intent of the Torah to tell us stories about past events. What is primary is the substantive content the inner meaning of the subjects discussed. The latter will become even clearly clearer whenever it is challenged by a negating element. Okay, so the Rav Kook here is saying that, first of all, you don't have to start out in a position of defense. Even though you might come across in the lab, in the study of history, wherever, of some conclusion some new teaching that contradicts the Torah. You don't have to immediately say, I'm from, therefore I can't listen to them. Why not? The escape hatch is that the purpose of the Torah is not to tell us stories of past events. It's not a history book, or it's not a book, a textbook in physics. The most important purpose of the stories of the Torah is to teach us the inner meaning of the subjects discussed. And this inner meaning is dafka revealed when you have a negating element which forces us to rethink the literal meaning. And he refers here to what we just read in the Guide to the Perplexed. He says, I'm really relying on what was already said in the writings of early masters and principally the Rambam. At the present, 
But here he says, at the present, we must extend this principle even more. And I want you to think about how does he extend Rambam's principle even more? First of all, he says, it is of no consequence to us if there was once in the world a golden age where man enjoyed much good materially and spiritually, or that existence began by developing from a lower to a higher state and that it continues to evolve. Makes no difference to us whether Darwin was correct or whether the story of Adam Bachava in Gan Eden picking fruit off the trees and everything supplied to them, whether that was the beginning of mankind. What we must know, purpose of the story, is that there is the definite possibility that even if man should reach a higher state of development and be in line to enjoy all the honor and delight life can offer, if he should corrupt his behavior, he may lose everything and injure himself and his descendants for many generations to come. In other words, in other words the purpose of the story of Gan Eden is to teach us a moral lesson that our actions have reverberations for generations to come and that we can lose everything for a long, long time. This inference is suggested to us by the experience of man in the Garden of Eden, his sin and his banishment. And the Lord of all souls knows how deeply this warning against sin must be felt in the hearts of the people. The text of, in the Torah of Truth testifies to the need of this deeply felt warning. Once we reach this conception, we no longer need to resist the conception which is promulgated by the new scholars, meaning Darwinism. And since we have no longer an anterior motive in interest in this matter, we shall be, be able to judge equitably. Now we shall be able to refute their positions confidently to the extent that the truth shows us the way. So he's telling us, first of all, that once we accept the idea that the ultimate purpose of the Torah is to teach us moral lessons, we don't have to be on a biased uh, level when we enter the lab. We're no different and we can be just as neutral and objective as our irreligious or secular counterpart because it really doesn't matter what the uh, conclusions of the lab or science teach us because that is the literal meaning of the Torah. But uh, when there is a contradiction, this contradiction moves us to go back and reinterpret the Torah to look for its moral message and not to relate to it as a historical or scientific account. In general, this is an important principle in the conflict of ideas, that when an idea comes to negate some teaching in the Torah, we must not, to begin with, reject it, but build the edifice of the Torah above it, and thereby we ascend higher. And through this ascent, the ideas of the Torah are clarified. Then, once we are free of ideological pressure, we can also actively resist the idea that challenges us. So first of all, he says, 
that um, once we adopt his position, we don't have to be on the defensive regarding new research. And secondly, we can even welcome conflicts because the whole idea and purpose of the conflict is to force us to re-examine the message of the original text in the Torah and look for a higher meaning. Now, when he talks about uh, extending the teaching of the Rambam for, further, I think there are two major differences between Rav Kook and the Rambam. First of all, the Rambam takes science more seriously in the sense that Aristotle and his physics and metaphysics were around already for a thousand years. And he believed that there is one model of science and that is to the extent that is absolutely pro proven, final and eternal. Whereas Rav Kook has a more tentative view of science and he views the connection between science and religion as sort of a spiral that first of all, we have a religious tradition. Then comes science and brings us to question our understanding of that tradition. So we build a palace of Torah above the scientific uh, conclusion so that it can handle that. Then we get a new picture of reality, which may create a new vision of science. And so on it goes on and so. And secondly, the type of um, message that Rav Cook finds in the conflict and in interpreting allegorically is a moral message. Whereas for the Rambam, truth, scientific truth and religious truth are really both engaged in the same ballpark of truth. And when one interprets allegorically, it really comes to verify or to uh, validate the scientific message, but it is something that only sophisticated people can manage to contain within their religious views. Um, I'll end off by saying that the Rambam introduced one revolution in our understanding of Torah. Rav Kook is uh, introducing a second revolution, but I think that today our challenges have extended even further than those that the Rav Kook envisioned. And I really feel that we are on the brink of a new revolution in our understanding of Torah that extends perhaps much further, but that is room for a different session. So now, Amazing. So much uh, food for thought here, friends. Let's open it up. I, I, I know I have a question, but I'd love to see if anyone else wants to jump in first. So please feel free to unmute yourself um, to ask a question. I'm so appreciating on video, videoing yourself. So I see your faces. I see yes. a lot of them. Great. Okay, while well, some others are being shy, let me jump in with one which is that I think when we're primarily talking about reason, we're talking kind of in the ancient world or, or even medieval times around kind of the logically proven, I think of the realms of science, of math, of certain dimensions of philosophy, like epistemology. 
But when we move from the descriptive to the prescriptive, the question not of truth, but of ethics, natural law, conscience, the ethical, how do you think we would, um, is that a major paradigm shift for the, in this clash in, for, in the Rambam and for Rav Cook, or is that more or less the same dimension? Um, I think the moral question, the moral questions are the hardest, mm -hmm. and, and uh, Western liberalism is uh, forcing us into confronting those questions. Um, how we deal with them halachically is a separate problem. Uh, I, I think that uh, those who want to remain loyal to tradition uh, will rely on I don't want to use this cynically, a certain amount of double talk, but um, surreptitious um, changes that happen inch by inch, going back a step, two steps forward, going back a step, two steps forward. This is not in done, done intentionally. It's done partly because of life circumstances that force new uh, moral standards upon them. And afterwards, uh, especially now in our uh, global age where uh, communities are not separated from each other and one change is immediately known all over the world and whatever one post says is immediately uh, either accepted or attacked by millions of others. Um, so things happen much more, uh, are much more sensitive to what is happening on the ground and some things happen um, either with a conscious breaking of norms or with uh, unconscious breaking of norms. And eventually, um, halakha catches up and either uh, comes down absolutely against these things or incorporates them gradually and so that they are hardly felt. But we're living in a different uh, age and uh, the way halakha is functioning uh, has to be much more attentive to uh, what's happening on the ground because uh, changes are happening so rapidly uh, that uh, and and the whole idea of a centralized authority uh, doesn't exist anymore, even in Haredi communities. Mm -hmm. I was wondering um, about um, the the uh, I don't know if, you know if this is a correct a description the relative. Um, lack of um, objection um, to Rav Cook um, in, in in these areas as uh, relative to uh, the, the the uproar in response to the Rambam uh, in his time, and that uh, whether or not given, I mean, there's a certain religious air about Rav Cook that was questionable because the Rambam had adopted Aristotle. So there was um, a, a room for uh, attack. Uh, whereas Rav Koch is sort of protected by, um, by the whole sort of uh, aura around his, his mystical devotion. Um, so that presenting rather radical, it's a radical idea Maybe more radical. I mean, what Rav Koch says is most probably more radical than the Rambam. Or uh, I, that's what I, I, I. That's part of my question. What, what, what your assessment is? 
So first of all, don't assume that he wasn't attacked. He was very much attacked by the old issue. Secondly, uh, many people didn't know, and to this day don't know the depth of his uh, revolutionary ideas uh, because his, uh, they didn't understand his works, they didn't understand, and they weren't publicized. And uh, his, uh, the Nazir, Rav Sviyahuda, really tried to prevent him uh, uh, against attack by uh, muting somehow expressions of his, particularly regarding a sim certain sympathy he had for Spinoza, and his pantheism. Uh, but thirdly, uh, this applies also to the Rambam, that uh, although he had uh, very um, audacious ideas on a philosophical or theological level, on a practical level, he was really quite conservative in his psika, which was uh, true of the Rambam as well. Uh, and the Radak, Estecha uh, the uh, Ramban, Sympathy with Rambam simply because he was a Mahdi. Uh -huh. Okay, great. Uh, time for one more question if someone else wants to jump in here. Shmuley, I'll ask a question. Yes, Rev. Dover. <clears throat> uh, my impression is listening to uh, reading and listening to Rev. Cook is that it's uh, I'm immediately reminded of the phrase which is a you know which is a a central slogan that you find in virtually every Hasidic Sefer, certainly the older Svarim. And it strikes strikes me that 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 statement is is totally in line, Rav Kook is totally in line with that, obviously, uh, perhaps influenced by that. Torah as well. I'm sorry? It's Hasidish Torah as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. And that, uh, and, and I, I would like to uh, ask Professor Ross the following, which is that in a, in a genuinely rational point of view, if one understands that Torah is min hashamayim. Wouldn't it have to be that it was constantly unpacked and uh, and discovered uh, anew, with essentially with new nitzchiyut for uh, every person and every generation? Is that a question or a statement? It's a question for you. Uh, I would say it's a statement. I, I would repeat it as a statement. If we're talking about uh, 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 an infinite God with an infinite message because it has to apply for all time, then obviously it has to be revealed like uh, peeling off peels from an onion, and, but forever and ever because uh, we are finite being, beings and we cannot contain an infinite message. Hmm. So that's okay. history is giving sort of the breakdown of the infinity. Amazing, amazing. Friends, uh, uh, please join me in thanking Professor Ross for this wonderful time of learning. Uh, I hope you'll continue to study the source sheet that was provided since there's a lot there to unpack. And uh, as we are in Elul, this learning is always in the, in the spirit of our own teshuva, our clarity on truth and our own refinement. So wishing everyone a meaningful uh, uh, process of teshuva this month of Elul and a Shana Tovah to everyone and look forward to continuing to learn with you all later today.
uh, 2 p.m. Rabbi Devin Villarreal on uh, Tikkun Olam in the Talmud. So thank you very much and see you all soon. Thank you.